Welcome to the Distracted Driving Podcast. I'm Sean Genovese. This is episode 48. We're all in the human capital development business. That is that is quite the turn of phrase, isn't it? The human capital development business. This is the fourth and final part of our interview with Emeritus Professor James Moore. And if you missed the last episode, this one is going to start off with the answer to another question, because as you all know by now, I love a good cliffhanger. So uh, basically, I, um, I left us off with uh, the question that, hey, look, in the age of YouTube and artificial intelligence, and in the context of this business model that Jim has described for how universities work, uh, which is basically follow the money. So they uh, they chase research dollars so that they can do research, so they can have expertise at the university and then bring that into the classroom. And there's just this this machine at work. But we've also got another machine at work, and it's those things I just mentioned. It's things like YouTube and Instagram and the Internet and being able to search for the world's information, and now AI can deliver things in a way that we haven't seen before, and it's uh, growing by leaps and bounds. So the question is, what's the future of the university? And it uh, turns out we're all in the human capital development business, or so says James Moore. So I hope that you enjoy this final part of the conversation. Um we will be signing off uh, w- with Jim, so no post-amble on this episode. So I will alert you right now that uh, this episode is sponsored in part by Lead Out Loud Workshops. Head over to lolworkshop.com to find out more about the workshops that combine improv, agile, and even a little bit of Goldilocks to help engineers, great engineers, become confident, effective leaders. All right, without further ado, here is uh, my co-host, Stephanie Van Ash, and I, and our wrap-up of our conversation with Emeritus Professor James Moore. Hmm. Well, we're all in our own ways in the human capital development business, and um, universe, it has not gone as well as it should. Uh, to date. So there are credentials universities produce that don't have a lot of market value, and that should change. And if the universities can't find a way to change it themselves, the market will help them uh, using some of the uh, techniques and forces you just described. Uh, we do have to change. And I, in, you know, as I talk to career academics, about what lies ahead when it comes to instruction and how we're organized to deliver it, uh, there there is an element of terror in there because um, generative AI is going to be an important tool. Uh, We don't know how, right? Um, Sometimes new technologies just show up and bludgeon you and you have to figure it out as you go, like uh, telecommunications, right? And sometimes there are exogenous events that drive these outcomes and you need thousands of people involved in responding to those circumstances 
because Darwinistically something is going to work out and it's going to emerge. So um, we during during the pandemic, um, the School of Engineering at USC had a little bit of an advantage, in my opinion, because we had been in the distance education business for 50 years. It started out with closed circuit TV and telephone lines and aerospace companies, and, it, and we went to the web in 2000, and we figured we'd be hybrid video and web, and video lived one more year, and it was gone. Right? We were, you know, entirely web-based. So, mm-hmm. um, but for us, a lot of our classrooms were studios, and you would have a class that had an in-person section and simultaneously a separate class that was a distance section. To the extent that I think at USC you had producers, right? Yes. Yes, we had staff, right? We, we, we weren't turning to the faculty members. Our first impulse was not to turn to the faculty member and say, you figure out how to do all of it, how to organize the class, deliver the class, right. and manage the technology by yourself all at once. Uh, we thought that looked foolish. And, but we knew it was foolish because we had had this ingrained distance education experience that was part of our culture. That's why USC has more master students in engineering than any other institution on the planet. Um, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, Georgia Tech are all part of a, a four-way tie for second place, and it's a distant second. And USC has had a lot because they've, they've been invested in this technology. So we were in a pretty good position during the pandemic. Uh, but circumstances like the pandemic force everybody to adapt, and the universities will be forced to adapt, and they're thinking about how to do it. Um, and some of them will get it right, and some of them will get it wrong. I, I think the one reason the university model will not disappear as we know it is I don't really think the it, it would be endangered as we know it if we changed the way if we got government out of the science funding business to a greater extent, and I don't mean science funding isn't necessary and science research isn't necessary, it's just not clear to me that it is the government that ought to be behind it. Um, That aside, um, one of the things that a university experience does is it um, it provides employers with a signal that you can finish something you start. So there, there are mm-hmm. two schools of thought in what education is doing. There's the content school of thought that says really it's what you study and what you know and what you learn and what you can do, and that plays a, a role. And there's another school of thought that says it's equally important that you started it, you invested it, it was complicated, it was hard work, and you finished it. And employers want a those test people. of rigor. And of course, yeah, both uh, both are relevant clearly. But you can't dismiss the signaling uh, dimension of this because, you know, if, if it was all content, then people who finished seven out of eight semesters would earn seven-eighths of what they would earn if they actually took the degree. And they don't, right? So there is an economic premium that goes with finishing separate from the content. And uh, that market evidence is, is something I take seriously. And it means that the the universities are accomplishing more than simply imparting knowledge. And if we understand everything they're doing, we'll have a better chance at surviving 
uh, but some won't. I mean, we're universe, small colleges are closing left and right. Uh, there's a demographic shift that we're, we're going to have to take delivery on. There are fewer students than there used to be. Um, and it's going to force, we're all going to have to compete. And if those who compete successfully will thrive. And those who don't will return their resources to the market to be used in other ways by more productive operations. So on that note of keeping universities competitive, oh, sorry, I cut you off. It, it, on that note, you know, in keeping universities competitive, you know, one thing that's often, and my, my background is in HR, I've been in HR for 10 years, and we're, we commonly say that diversity is a good thing, right? And, and so my thought is, as universities become more groupthink, right, or become more lean in a certain way or certain thought model, and they're kind of going to become more homogenous, the word, uh, is that impacting their ability to be competitive? Um, you've asked the core question. No fair. <laughs> um, yes, it does. <laughs> right. So, uh, diversity of, I, mean, I, w I would like race and gender to be about as relevant as hair color on the job. Right. Um, the diversity of ideas is where universities have their real advantage. And if we lose that, then our capacity to execute is greatly hampered. And we're executing both research and instruction. Uh, you want, regardless of whether you're in English or visual anthropology or mechanical engineering, you want graduates who, are, who can do high-level abstract critical thinking, who can step back, detach, analyze, um, who develop expertise within their disciplines and problem domains and apply what they know in thoughtful and productive ways. And that doesn't happen without practice. And the practice is harder if you are in a cultural monolith where some potentially productive set of ideas are off limits. Right? You're, you're, adding constraint. you're adding constraints to the feasible region. You can't improve the value of the optimal solution by constraining the number of acceptable outcomes. And we don't really know which of the outcomes are best. So we should be conservative. And there are ideas held and there are ideas upheld. You know, not all ideas are created equal. Some ideas do belong in the dustbin. But you figure out which ones those are by not being a gatekeeper about which ideas are allowed to be entertained. You entertain them all as best you can, uh, given the time and resources that you have, and you compare them, and some you keep, and some you discard, and you try to move ahead. And uh, we're not doing that as well as we ought to be doing it, or can do it, frankly. I wonder if so, you have any advice for our listeners on, you know, what are some of your tips for keeping dialogue open or encouraging, you know, really productive, beautiful conversation around any topic? Um, I lived in a residence hall for 25 years with, in a student residence hall, and I worked pretty closely with our division of student affairs. And over time, Though that personnel complement became mostly school of education graduates, 
When I started in that line of work, it was a, a people from a much more diverse set of backgrounds. And the schools of education, the graduate programs tend to give everybody a course in Rawlsian social justice, and they ignore the competing ideas like Nozick. Um, so you emerge from schools of ed with a fairly homogenous point of view. And I found myself bumping up against these folks uh, with respect to what the student undergraduate experience ought to be and how it ought to be organized. And the way I coped with it was by looking for common ground. And sometimes our, the commonality is in terms of high-level objectives, even if we disagree about uh, procedures. And sometimes uh, the commonality um, exists at the procedural level, though you might invest in procedures for different reasons. Um, so in the same procedures for different reasons. So if you're actively looking for common ground, you're communicating to your potential partners on your team in your shared enterprise that you, you take them seriously. So um, when Sean teaches engineering management, teamwork is part of it. Uh, good teams don't exist, exist by accident. And they're always expensive to get to, right? They just never, they, they, they don't emerge typically by happenstance alone. You have to have a strategy for doing it. Um, so you can be adult about it, right? There are a large number of organizations emerging outside universities focused on this question. So organizations like the foundation, used to be the foundation for individual rights in education. Now it's the foundation for individual rights in expression. Um, defends diversity of ideas and free speech. Uh, Heterodox Academy, John Haight's operation. Um, there's a, a number of organizations like the National uh, Association of Scholars. Uh, there are a number of organizations that have emerged outside universities where people are asking themselves, how can we have those beautiful conversations? What do we have to do to connect with our colleagues, even if we, even if our colleagues disagree with us and want nothing to do with us? Um, there are no simple answers to that. What you, the first thing you do is you don't give up. Right? Uh, you, you stay engaged, mm. and you, you, know, you wrestle with the big questions, and you try to write things. You put ideas out there. The nice thing about writing is it's not ephemeral. Once you've written it, it's out there. People can read it, think about it, talk about it. Um, so, you know, the life of the mind is real. And if you, you enjoy it, um, try to apply it constructively. And you will make progress. And keep in mind the students are not nearly as homogenous as the faculty. Right? The, the students come from households hmm. with a wide array of values and perspectives. And um, if they know that you're interested in the way they think, they will come to you. So um, there can be a there can be a I, I was going to say an illicit alliance between the students and the faculty, but that sounds that communicates something that I don't mean. Um, yeah. You can form good. <laughs> don't <working> go there. <laughs> I, that's it's not what I meant at all. Um, there can be very deep, good, profound intellectual working relationships between students and faculty, um, even if you know, the faculty are holding minority opinions like libertarianism. There are still students out there that are very interested in those thoughts and those ideas and those systems. So um, don't, lose sight of, don't lose track of the fact that 
there are students out there to be engaged. It, it, uh, if, if I can oversimplify what you just uh, outlined, um, I think it's Dennis Prager that I stole this from. It's clarity over agreement. And I mean, that's what I am always after. I, I have members of my family that are, are uh, diametrically opposed politically uh, from, from my position. And our most productive conversations, though, are when we can pursue that clarity. Like, what do we actually disagree about? And then we can we can decide if that's, you know, maybe we actually agree. But but so much of it is just not clear. And that's why I, I hope I, I like your message. Uh, never give up. Um, it's hard, but um, I guess we will we will persevere and do our best. I want to be respectful of your time here. So I have uh, one final uh, question that you can answer very quickly if you'd like. Um, I have. Uh, perhaps more quickly I've than my last answer to a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> i've i've talked to a lot of people uh on this show lately it it seems like i i think it's a function of we're all of similar ages and we have kids now that are getting close to going to college and so the topic of college has come up and for the most part um amongst my peers our positions on college have um have morphed over the years. When I went to school, it was like, no, that's that's what you do. You're going to go, you're going to get a four-year degree, and then, you know, like magic, the uh, the opportunities will just shower upon you, which uh, when I get some time, I'm going to write a book about that myth. But what is your take on, if you had a college-aged student today, uh, do you send them to college? Do you send them to college universally, like that's the path, or, or is it more nuanced than that? And, and if you do send them, how do you make sure that they're able to focus on clarity over agreement in an environment where, you know what, uh, the freedom of ideas is maybe getting more limited? Well, I get asked a variation of that question pretty frequently, which is where should I send my child to school? And it's yeah. a hard question to answer. Um, I think, I think Pepperdine's a good place. I think George Mason's a good place. Um, I think Hillsdale gives an excellent education, but you're out in the middle of the boondocks, frankly. Right? A lot of people want to be someplace urban. Um, I think the focus of parents ought not to be success necessarily, but happiness. Now, you have to be realistic. Um, you know, if I, I think you can leave, lead a full and complete life um, with a vocational background, so we need, I think, to to focus more on educational options that support manual arts uh, than we have in the past. We've focused very heavily on college as the the ticket and the way to the middle class and um, a comfortable life, and in fact, there are many. So I'd say, you know, focusing on college too much leads to a proliferation of majors that are not of great value to employers. And we're, that's a disservice to the, the households and firms that uh, we ought to be trying to serve. So um, I'd say don't be afraid to be open to all options. How 
an 18-year-old approaches um, a new experience like college, what they make of it. Um, that A lot of that depends on what happened in the first 18 years. There's no way to send a child to school without accepting some level of risk and uncertainty about what's going to happen. One of the things I tell parents when I talk to them, when they're dropping off their children, particularly at the beginning of the process, is look, if they've got a major, be ready for the fact it's probably going to change because they're, they're operating on a decision that was made by a motivated 15-year-old who I'm sure was well-intentioned and well-informed for 15-year-olds, but that individual does not know the full array of options available to them. And they're going to be bludgeoned with new options, and there's very likely to be a change. And that sort of um, intellectual migration is useful and constructive. It's growth. Be ready for it. Um, whether or not you do the work, so to speak, and apply yourself and make the trade-offs necessary between fun and study to be able to move ahead, well, th those... Pardon me. <coughs> My apologies. It's the carbonated beverage. Um, the likelihood of success there was determined well before uh, the student stepped on campus. So uh, you've got to impart those lessons along the way, and it's incremental. And I, I don't have children. I've, I've only had other people's children. I've had a lot of them. But it would terrify <laughs> me if I, had, if I had to do that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well, look, my my daughters are into cheer, and that's that's basically like sending them to uh, uh, college tuition. Um, so I'm not looking forward to the real mm -hmm. college tuition. Um, James Moore, thank you very much. A great conversation. We appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for joining. Well, us. thank you. This was a was a real pleasure, um, Stephanie. I'm happy to be part of your maiden voyage with the Enterprise. Oh, <laughs> it's been fun. Uh, I love ending the show with a Star Trek reference.